Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these car times. Data with the latest WWE edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. And if I stumbled there, that's because this episode is more than a WWE edition. We are not only breaking down fallout from WWE Clash at the Castle and what happened Monday night on Raw, but we will be going into significant detail about the post-AEW all-out media scrum and the fallout that has happened from that over the last 48 hours. So yes, that's right, folks. Getting Over is back once again, and this will indeed be a loaded episode. So loaded that despite every week I say, hey, I'm going to quickly go through our intro and then get right to the action, except that doesn't really happen. False. That's happening right now, because let me remind you that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. It's all about so please. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark. Go back to being marks for the Silver King for Vintage. Leave those five-star rating and reviews for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. The reviews specifically on Apple Podcasts. Let everyone know why you listen and why they should subscribe. We always read the five-star reviews that are written out on the show, and the Silver King is going to do that off the top because we got two new ones this week. I appreciate it. First, The Dan H. Headline, good. Five stars. Written review. I like it. Thanks. Appreciate All it, right. Man. I like you. Here we go. And then also uh, M Roddenberg 70. Very excited for this podcast for the it got cut off. I'm sorry. I don't know the rest of your headline. I've uh, been following the Silver King since his ITC SOC days, and he just continues to get better with time. Thank you. Uh, getting over is the place to go for unbiased takes on everything wrestling while also keeping things fun as much as possible. I look forward to every episode when they come out, provided there aren't any more Gatorade takes. Chris has been proven wrong on that. And uh, that was me injecting that. He didn't say that. Oh, uh, and if you aren't listening to this, start being a mark for getting over. Very good review. M. Rodenberg 70. Thank you so much, Chris. Not only I'm not going to do the whole Gatorade thing. We got to get to the stuff. But not only did I prove you wrong on the show, I have sent you two different um, college football teams doing Gatorade tests where all of the athletes say say and call it lemon lime. I'm not talking about the green yellow thing. I'm talking about calling it lemon lime. So I think I won that. I do have to say. It's mixed. The getting over has, I think, largely sided with me, but you definitely have had your supporters on that side. Okay. Well, I mean, the people who actually drink it uh, as part of their livelihoods, the athletes, they agree. And yeah, uh, and colors agree. The color scale spectrum agrees as well. And one more thing before we get to the actual show, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at getting overcast. We post new episodes, tweet about wrestling all week long. It's a really good follow at getting overcast. As I said, we had to get through that intro quickly because we have so much to talk about. We really like to keep the Tuesday episodes WWE centric and the Thursday episodes all about AEW and NXT. But this scrum coming out of all out was absolutely insane. That's the best way I can describe it. Before we get to the scrum, I briefly want to let you know, um, I always you know, give match grades for everything on pay-per-views and premium live events. And I also like correcting myself when I'm too low or too high. This is my best opportunity to do it. I rewatched the main event again. I was way too harsh on it. It was way better than I thought. Four stars, A minus, not a B plus. Just wanted to rectify it. Anyway, Chris, look, um, welcome to the show, by the way. Vintage Chris Vanini is here. Uh, look, we're going to get into this whole scrum. And there are so many different parts of it that we're going to break it down in sections. 
let me give an overview to start, and I'll let you get in briefly. The scrum devolved into a CM Punk airing of grievances, uh, and Tony Khan was sitting alongside him the entire time, watching, nodding, never attempting to silence him, and we'll get into the specifics in a bit. But the absurdity continued after that, when Tony Khan lost his mind over WWE without being prompted, and then it reached a boiling point with a reported backstage brawl involving CM Punk, Ace Steel, Kenny Omega, and at least Nick Jackson, possibly Matt Jackson as well, possibly more people. And if all of that sounds wild to you, well, yeah, it's <laughs> wild, okay? None of this is anything that it should have happened at any time, let alone in the immediate aftermath of one of a company's four you know, tentpole pay-per-view events. Now, we need to break this down in sections like I just said. So let's start with Punk's rant. Before I get into the rant, I want to provide some context for those who may not be aware. Khan was asked in a Forbes interview leading into All Out whether Punk had anything to do with Colt Cabana being moved off the AEW roster and into a role with Ring of Honor, given their broken friendship, their legal battle. And if you'll notice, Colt was never written off AEW TV. He was just gone from the Dark Order one day, and he's apparently in Ring of Honor. We haven't seen him since. Punk Similar, was also- similarly with BT, he was a regular on, on BTE with the Dark Order. That is also not the case because he's not around the AEW shows. Okay, so Punk was also mad about Hangman Page's promo a few months ago, which we knew about, as well as an answer he gave in an interview, both of which, when you actually read them, are really benign. But Chris, before I get into the breakdowns of the two separate incidents here, um, is there anything you want to say to add context or just preface the entire thing? Uh, I'll say I hate calling it a media scrum. Call it a press conference. Make it sound better. Media scrum sounds so weird. A media scrum is when someone is standing, everybody's standing around you, sticking your recorder in your face. This is a press conference. Media scrum is a weird word. You're right. uh, And and a media scrum is more informal where if something does happen, you kind of sometimes you put it in context and you kind of let it go. um, Or the person will come up to you after and say, hey, look, I screwed up. I was passionate in the moment. Would you consider not using this particular phrase or something like that. Yes. When you are sitting yes. at a table in front of people, you are correct. It is a formal press conference. And by me calling it a scrum, I'm actually kind of letting them off the hook a little bit. To it, almost... No, it's officially a scrum. They put scrum on the I know, I know, video. but I'm by, yes. by me not contextualizing what it really was, yes. kind of lets yep. them off the hook and make it makes it sound informal when it's really not. It was yeah. very formal. I do like that AEW does these. I've had a lot of criticism of the questions that have been asked of the wrestlers. A lot of these being way too kind of just friendly and buddy buddy and not asking the questions that people wanted to ask, like CM Punk. And we got that here. So credit to a lot of the reporters in there who did ask a lot better questions. And look, when that happens, you get a lot better story like this. This is what happens when you ask the right questions. I mean, it shouldn't happen what actually went down, but... You get responses and you learn things. That's the entire point of working in journalism. It's it's to inform the public, right? And that's what some of the people there did. So let's start with CM Punk. So CM Punk, the company's most popular wrestler, who just won the championship in the main event, opened the scrum by absolutely trashing Colt Cabana completely unprompted. He brought it up on his own. Now, I'm not going to cover every detail. But he trashed him. He trashed the media for ever making it a topic. And he was completely unhinged for the better part of like eight minutes. On its own, it was embarrassing. But we all know there's great animosity there. What really made it wild is during the rant, he ripped the EVPs, the Young Bucks 
and Kenny Omega saying they purposely spread lies about the subject. The Bucks are friends with Colt, by the way. Then he called Hangman Adam Page, basically the number two homegrown talent in AEW besides MJF, and one of a finite number of people who have actually been AEW champion. A quote, empty-headed, fucking dumb fuck. And by the way, there are going to be a number of curse words here on the show. They are in quotes. They are what the talent said. It's not me. I mean, maybe I end up throwing one in from passion, but I'm quoting them. Punk was angry that Hangman, during the build to Double or Nothing, cut a promo about saving AEW from Punk. It was relatively innocuous at the time, but it rubbed Punk the wrong way. Now, if you remember, two weeks ago, Punk clowned Page live on TV by issuing a challenge and then calling uh, Page a coward when he didn't answer him, which was not part of the booking. He also got a lot of criticism for that, but most of them passed it off as a receipt for Page's promo and that, hey, the tit for tat was done and it was settled. But then he doubled down on it here, unprompted in front of the media after All Out for no reason. Punk said Page hasn't accomplished anything, was a disgrace to the company and the industry, and that the situation was never resolved. Then he accused the EVPs of trying to get the IWC to hate him, saying he's the top babyface and that, quote, these stupid guys think they're in Reseda, unquote. He also told Hangman to go fuck himself. I remind you, this is how he opened a press conference after winning the world title in the main event in his hometown. So Punk finally leaves. And then we get reports about the brawl I mentioned with all those people. Reports are Omega and the Bucks confronted Punk, who threw the first punch. Nick Jackson got knocked out when Ace Steel threw a chair at him. Matt Jackson may have taken the first punch, we don't know. Ace Steel then supposedly tussles and bites Kenny Omega, I shit you not. Security runs backstage, breaks it up. The cops may have been called on top of that. And right now before the show, there's some rumors out there. I also heard them as well, that Punk may have actually injured himself during this entire thing. Peck, shoulder, something like that. Chris, if CM Punk was not straight edge, I'd have thought he was on something here. This was unhinged. It was unprofessional. Frankly, it was appalling. This is a guy who said he joined AEW because of the locker room camaraderie, how Khan handled Brody Lee's death. This is a guy who cries about standing alongside coworkers and wrestlers sticking together for their rights. And yet, here he is, being a total and utter hypocrite, tearing apart the entire locker room, publicly insulting his coworkers, ruining morale, embarrassing the company, and making Khan look like an absolute fool. And he's doing this one week after Khan had that mandatory locker room meeting to calm things down. And Colt, by the way, this guy can't even defend himself. Punk's talking about this guy's freaking mom. How low can you go? You really got to appreciate the ego of a guy saying WWE killed his passion for wrestling. Yet when there's finally real competition for the first time in 25 years, he jumps on board after all the hard work is done, after the elite, John Moxley, Chris Jericho, Cody Rhodes, all these guys took a massive risk. And then he comes in and puts himself on a pedestal above all the talented people who work to make it a reality and rips the locker room apart from the inside out. And then to embarrass Khan on top of that, Tony at one point tried to say, hey, maybe I shouldn't have answered those questions in Forbes. Punk cuts him off mid-answer and says, it's not your position to make things, quote, very fucking clear. 
This is the owner of the company. Of course, <laughs> yes. it's his position. Okay. He completely punked Khan here, no pun intended. Tony looked like a buffoon. It was dumbfounding to see Khan sitting there nodding, not cutting Punk off or taking any action while this guy trashed the locker room, the EVPs that he built the company with, Khan, and the media. Don't forget, this is all elite wrestling. Khan should have ended the interview after the first answer on Colt, but he definitely should have ended it when he started talking about the EVPs. And if not then, when Punk interrupted him, he should have cut him off immediately and sent him home. He had multiple occasions in which he could have ended this. Khan has said and done many things over the years to make me perceive him as, I hate using the term, more of a money mark than a serious businessman. But to his credit, he listens to the fans for the most part. He puts together some good wrestling, especially early on in AEW. And AEW has succeeded and thrived. There's no yes. question about that. But this was a reminder. He's not a serious boss. He's a fan who was sitting there soaking in a shoot promo from the favorite wrestler of his childhood. You could see it on his face. He let Punk walk all over him for three to four minutes during that press conference. And I know not all of you are sports fans, but could you imagine, those of you who are, Aaron Judge sitting next to Brian Cashman, who's not even the owner of the Yankees, with Judge ripping his teammates, his manager, and the front office, and Cashman just letting it happen in a press conference after the Yankees won the pennant to get into the playoffs. That's what happened here. Khan just sat there and let it happen. Let me tell you guys something. I've owned businesses, nothing anywhere near the, the level of AEW. I currently manage like 30 people in my job. Granted, none of them are paid what CM Punk is paid. But if I was in Khan's position, I would have stopped Punk after he got 10% of the way into that cult rant well before it got out of hand. And if he just kept going, not only would I have fined and suspended his ass, I'd seriously consider firing him. And then... After learning about the backstage brawl, I absolutely would fire him if all the information comes in after an investigation and proves that it's his fault. Eddie Kingston was just suspended two weeks for pushing, not punching, pushing a guy in the face. Punk should not be working there if reports of the fight are accurate. And even if the, those reports are not accurate, there's a case to be made that he sealed his fate anyway in that press conference alone. These are the most important people in your company, the new world champion, your trios champion and most popular tag team, the best wrestler in the world, arguably, and the guy who is leading this huge video game undertaking for you, one of your homegrown stars, Hangman Page I'm referring to there, and Khan just let Punk make a mockery of all of them, including himself as the owner. Punk was appalling, Khan was pathetic, the whole thing was embarrassing. You know, the most telling line of that entire press conference was actually Chris Jericho later on. And Jericho was asked about the talent meeting last week and all the drama. And Jericho says this again with Tony Khan right there, that Vince would never let this happen, that it would be nipped in the bud. People would be kept in line and that it wouldn't have happened, which I think was a bigger indictment of Tony Khan than anything else. So well, let, let's I mean, get not, not more let, than punk, but, <laughs> but yes, that wasn't let's get well let's get back so the beginning of this is important because punk walks in and picks out a a writer uh i forget i don't remember his name but he implies that the guy used to do improv comedy i think in chicago with colt cabana and punk asks the guy if he's still friends with colt cabana the guy says no and punk says that makes two of us 
And Punk then says that basically a lot of the journalists in the room are friends with Colt Cabana, friends with the elite, and they let the elite feed them these negative stories about Punk and ran with them and made Punk look bad, which on its merits is a fair point. The, you, I, you know, the, the wrestling journalism world is very messy depending on who exactly is, is what. There, there's trustworthy people. There's not trustworthy people. It's a very friendly business at times, like I mentioned at the beginning of this. And if that was happening, if if the elite were were feeding stories to these writers to, to, dish, to diss on punk, it's understandable that he would be very upset at the media he was about to speak to. And then that's how he transitioned to the Young Bucks and, and Hangman and everybody that. That, that, that. that was the process of his rant that turned into them. Another one of these lines where Punk says, Hangman Page, a guy who has not accomplished anything. At, the mo- at that moment, Hangman was the world champion of AEW. Correct. That, that's such an insulting thing to say about the company you work for and the boss you're sitting next to. And, and so like that, that was another line that really stuck out to me. The Colt Cabana stuff, getting into the lawsuit. We don't need to get into that. Colt Punk saying my friendship, my adult friendship with another person should not be a story is fine. That is fair. But if it is true that Punk changed the job status of Colt Cabana in wrestling, that's a wrestling story. He can be asked about that. Absolutely. He let it sit out there. For a long time, like this is the moment that he decided to speak back on it. I don't know why you wait until after you win the world title at a big pay-per-view to decide to talk back on some of the stuff. But he let it fester out there. You, you can be upset with the reporting, but if you're not like, you know, speaking back up about it, it's going to keep going like that. And then the Tony Khan stuff. He. In the moment before news of a fight or before a fight. Basically, like, kind of said he was okay with all of it. He was co-signing because it he's, by sitting there, yeah. He, he, well, no, because he says a lot of great wrestling can come out of real-life tension, essentially. And clearly, that's what he had been doing before, and has, has been. he's been trying to kind of push that boundary a bit. But this doesn't feel like Bret Hart versus Shawn. This feels like late 2000 or early 2000s WCW Vince Russo type of stuff. All, all the internet fans are talking about something. Let's throw it on the screen. If you don't follow wrestling on the internet and you watch AEW, you have no clue what like a lot of this stuff is, is, is going on. Tony looks like he does, does not understand what's going on. He has zero control of the situation. He feels like a fanboy who's got a bunch of toys in the sandbox and he just wants to do all these dream matches and not necessarily lead things in a real way. I, I just, I really can't get over Jericho saying that this wouldn't happen under Vince, like right there. And look, Vince McMahon is a, a, a creep who got pushed out of his company just like a couple months ago. So we're not going to sit here and say Vince McMahon is the you know most amazing boss and businessman and all this kind of things. But when it comes to keeping things in order and keeping employees in order, uh, they've been through that. And AW is now in a really, really, really bad spot. I don't think this is good for the company. If you think it's going to pop a rating or something like that, if your world champion just got injured because he got in a real life fight and he's your biggest money draw, that is terrible. And it's a reflection of the leadership that it allowed it to get to this point. 
You absolutely nailed it. I mean, I don't even know between what I said and what you said that there's much that there's much more to say about specifically the CM Punk incident, because so much more happened here, Chris, that I want to get to Thunder Rosa, Tony Khan. So, you know, I I know you just kind of went through your whole spiel, but was there anything else that was kind of floating around that you wanted to mention about CM Punk before we go to the second part of this entire thing? About Punk, uh, I just think like if he had kept it to just like this Cole Cabana thing isn't a story, like like if if he had just like kept what he was initially upset about and kept it to that, I think he could have come across as sympathetic a bit. But the way he goes about it, talking about Colt's mom, the way he goes about the right. he's calling him dumb fucks, saying you haven't accomplished anything when the guy's the world champion. He just he took it too far. He's always been a guy that like if he's your, if 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 you're his guy, you're his guy. But if you betray him a little bit, you're dead to him. But he also and he's also extremely sensitive. Like the stuff that yes. Hangman Page has said, it was it was none of it was something that you should legitimately get upset about to a significant the, degree or that you the can't weirdest handle thing, backstage. Like the weirdest thing punk was upset about was hangman page basically saying he doesn't need advice from the older vets. Like punk, when he came in, like clearly really wanted to be that older guy, that veteran to dish out advice to other people on FTR. I've said he has done that. It's just weird that he gets upset that people don't want his advice. Like I know, like again, FTR, they say he's been a great, role model mentor to them, but not everybody wants it. And that's like, okay, it's that, that was the weirdest thing that I think that he got upset about. He just seems extremely sensitive, extremely egotistical. He puts himself on such a high pedestal that no one should do anything that could ruffle his feathers a little bit, but he can do whatever he wants to anyone and get away with it. But again, what really just was shocking to me, and I already went on a rant, so I'm not going to go more on CM Punk, but is the fact that one week earlier, Tony Khan held that talent meeting. He's like, everyone, we need to keep stuff internal. Things are blowing, getting blown out of proportion. Everyone's going crazy here. And then one week later, right after one of the Temple pay-per-views, he does this and literally tears the locker room apart himself as the new champion. So someone put back on that pedestal and Tony Khan just sits there and does nothing. It was a total show of an inability to manage and to actually be in control of a locker room on Tony Khan's part. And what's and wild, I, I, sorry. What's yeah. Up? No, and then I was going to say, and then it, it noted, I said this on the, the instant analysis of All Out, but Kevin Owens also tweeted a picture of him in Stone Cold Steve Austin while this was going on. He did. A clear, a, a clear sign of like, hey, I'm happy with the decision I made to stay here. And yeah, I, I stayed in main event at WrestleMania against Stone Cold Steve Austin. Enjoy what you're doing over there. By the way, I don't think Kevin Owens, no, I know for a fact, uh, Kevin Owens and CM Punk have a very bad history. Owens, uh, I think Punk told Owens, he's like, you'll never get anywhere wearing a shirt, being out of shape, yeah. and blah, blah, blah. And Owens obviously took that personally. He's held a grudge for a long time. So KO has been able to stew in this, and he mentioned it kind of offhandedly on Raw. We'll talk about that later. But Chris, what's wild is, sure, what just happened with CM Punk that we talked about was the most important part of this entire thing. But it was far from the only thing that went down in this press conference. Tony Storm comes up as the interim AEW Women's Champion and says this, quote unquote, Thunder Rosa says she's injured. Okay, so when she says she's not injured, she can come back and lose to me. Clearly insinuating that Thunder Rosa is making the injury up, not in kayfabe. Super unprofessional. Shockingly, as you kind of mentioned already, Chris Jericho 
was the single most level-headed person who spoke out of anyone, including the owner of the company. Not a single shot at WWE or any bullshit from him. And then Tony Khan answered questions by himself at the end. And this thing went off the rails a second time. So Khan was asked two notable questions. The first was a follow-up about him saying WWE treated him poorly. And then he was asked an innocuous question about whether, hey, do you have any updated buy rate information for the show? Literally, that was the question. So first, Khan claimed, I've said a lot of nice things about WWE, but they don't send the same love back to me. Just like he said, WWE treats me poorly, which Chris, he sounded like a certain politician and I couldn't shake it. Both times they treat me bad. You know, they're bad. I'm good to them. They're bad to me. Everyone, you know, doesn't give me a chance, all that type of stuff. So I couldn't get that out of my head. But then when he answered about the buy rate, he said he expected it to fall short of 2021 all out and be the first AEW pay-per-view not to exceed the number pulled in by its counterpart year over year. So all out 2021 against all out 2022. But rather than consider that might be because last year's show had rumors of Brian Danielson and Adam Cole, or because this year's show, the build was absolutely atrocious. Instead, he blamed WWE. Khan said All Out was the only show on Labor Day weekend last year but the third show this year, which surprised him and was not a coincidence. Then he works himself into a frenzy saying, quote, when the fight is brought, I will continue bringing fights of my own. I have unique ways to do that and a lot of money to fight with. And then he kept going. I have to face the competition out there. When I compared myself to Jim Crockett promotions this weekend, I think I got a taste of the same medicine Jim Crockett promotions took but I have a lot more fucking money than Jim Crockett did. And I'm serious. I'm not going to sit back and take this fucking shit. To clarify, he's referring to WWE booking head to head against Jim Crockett back in the territory days. So decades ago, folks, as if what happened earlier was not already ridiculous enough. This was the height of fucking absurdity. First, to claim he was surprised by WWE shows this weekend, Clash at the Castle was announced in October 2021 and made official in April. All Out wasn't announced until July. Does Tony think he owns Labor Day weekend? Like if WWE is going to do a stadium show overseas, it basically has to do it on a holiday weekend. And they didn't even run head to head, which they could have. Their show was 31 hours before All Out. If he's talking about NXT Worlds Collide, first of all, it's a developmental brand that he's already beaten, so I don't know why he'd be concerned with it. But secondly, WWE purposely aired it in the afternoon from Orlando, Florida. They didn't need to air it in the afternoon, but they did so that it could end a full hour before the all-out pre-show began so as not to directly compete with him. Tony cannot seriously think that a 5 to $10 Clash at the Castle or NXT show on Peacock affected his buy rate. There was no direct competition. This is the same guy, mind you, who cried about anti-AEW Twitter bots suggesting WWE had something to do with it and never following up with promised proof. This is the guy who celebrated Vince McMahon's firing. This is the guy who made fun of WWE 
publicly and privately to Dana White for moving money in the bank from a stadium to an arena. This is the guy who has let wrestlers trash WWE on his television program for three years. This is the guy who is in the news last week accusing WWE of tampering. Well, not only did they not do that because you can't tamper with an athlete who's not collectively bargained, but he did the exact same thing to Jeff Hardy and Stokely Hathaway for a fact, not to mention probably others in some form or fashion that we can't confirm. And this is a guy who actively, right now as we speak, has an entire faction in his company led by one of its biggest stars that is completely built around mocking WWE and every single thing they do. Quote, I'm not going to sit back and take this fucking shit. What the hell does that mean? He literally just sat back an hour earlier and took a whole mouthful of shit from CM Punk. Quote, I have a lot more fucking money. Congratulations, dude. Your father has a lot of money. Even if you've had some business success yourself, it all came on the back of your dad giving you startup money. Khan can't even keep his locker room in order. And he's worried about WWE. This was pure scapegoat bullshit. So as not to admit, hey, maybe I had some shitty storytelling for a few months and didn't book a great card and fans decided not to buy it. This reeked of Khan being a typical rich kid who was getting his way for a long time until he finally met a little bit of adversity. Except he's supposed to be an adult businessman, not a quote, rich kid at age 40 or however old he is. You cannot actively antagonize, punch up and attack something for three years and then start moaning and crying at the slightest bit of adversity while trying to act blameless when things don't go your way. And he's not even blaming the right people here. He should be blaming himself. I've always had some relatively minor issues with Khan in the grand scheme of things. But he always had my respect for what he's done for the industry, creating a second option, giving jobs to a lot of people for the first two years, putting on a lot of really good television. But between the non-action in the punk situation and these comments, he has lost it. One note in fairness about the Labor Day thing, All Out has always been on Labor Day. So like, so I'm sure they knew it was going to be again, but again, it's the big, it's one of the biggest, it's one of the, it, it's a holiday in America. Like people get Chris, that time the off. Show, you, you are correct. You are a thousand percent correct that all out for two years has been on Labor Day weekend in Chicago prior, prior to this year. So, yes. so yes. Okay. WWE booked that show on Labor Day weekend, knowing pro- that most likely, even if they weren't 1000% sure, all out was going to be on Labor Day weekend. However, they booked it going direct to direct. They booked it 31 hours before All Out began, a completely yes. different yep, day. Yep, yep. They oh, are totally. not a $50 pay-per-view, they're a $5 or $10 Peacock show. And again, they announced it in October 2021 and then confirmed it yep. in April, so Khan couldn't have been surprised. Even no, if even if I'm not even if in April, right? He let's say he was surprised, "Oh my god, it's actually the same weekend they're doing this." He had from April until September to book a show that was so freaking good that no one could deny it and they would have to buy it because how could they miss this show? Instead, the booking was horrendous and people didn't want to buy this show probably because of that, because the main event was not announced until four days before because most of the other undercard matches were thrown together and either rushed or the storylines weren't great. And by the way, it wasn't just about this year's show. Last year's show was unique because it had the Brian Danielson rumors, because it had the Adam Cole rumors. So people 
were even more interested in last year's show and even less interested in this year's show. The blame for all of that or the context at a minimum for all of that belongs in AEW's camp, not on WWE. It's okay to point out that there's competition, but to then go off and I'm not going to take this fucking shit and I have more money than them and I'm not going to sit down for this. I mean, that is petty, childish bullshit. There was another line he said, he might have been asked about it too, but he said it a week or so ago. And that was basically that when Vince was, when Vince left the company, Tony was more hopeful than ever that WWE and AW could do a show together or something. And then now he's never felt more pessimistic about it happening, which was bizarre to me in the first place because why why would WWE ever do that? They never did a cross promotion with WCW or TNA. They did one, they did some stuff with ECW, but that's because they were subsidizing ECW essentially. Like, why would I just couldn't believe he thought that was possible? Like, I talked to Triple H about Tony Khan back in the when I went to that trial back at WrestleMania, and like, he's glad AEW exists. He's glad this other promotion giving jobs to people. He, it's good for wrestling. He knows that. But he's not going to help the company by doing a cross-promoted show. That felt like... Yeah. That, either either Tony Khan really thought that and was being really stupid, or he just said it as a way to try to make fans get mad at WWE again. That's what it seems was, like to me. But he's trying to create it, reasons to... You know, we've talked about this on this podcast for a very long time. The number one thing AEW has going for it is fan buy-in and the passion of their fan base. And for Mm -hmm. a long time, that was built upon anti-WWE sentiment. And with AEW, I'm not saying they're struggling by any means. They're still doing really good ratings, but they're not as hot as they were. And WWE is rip-roaring with heat right now. It is as hot as it's been in years. I think he's trying to muscle some of that back by creating this contrived anti-WWE is being anti-AEW, AEW being anti-WWE. Um, passion again, except it's not working because people are seeing through it. It's Swiss cheese. Right, right. So it it, it basically is like he he's, you know, a lot of the history of this company, AEW, has been built on dream matches, surprises, and anti-WWE sentiment. But it's been three, four years now. Like, it, it, you gotta be your own thing. And this is the part where what can Tony Khan do as a booker at this point in, in planning out stories? This, like we said, all out was not a well-booked card. What are the long-term stories? What are the intense stories that you're willing to tell? And figuring out just kind of how to book this thing big picture and not just being anti-WWE wherever you can. When I, I, when I watched Tony Khan's I have more fucking money type of comment that he made at the end, it felt to me like another one of his like, I'm trying to rally the troops. Fans get behind me. We're going to be okay type of situ- situation because he's done that a lot. He's things he said on Twitter, things he said in interviews. Yes. Like you said, he has been very, he's taken shots at AW uh, at WWE for the entire existence of this company. Entire and that's music. fine. Like that, yeah. that's part of what some of the fans like, but you got to be your own thing at some point. And you can't just keep going back to this. Well, to try to rile up your fans uh, and, and get them behind you. You got to have more than that at this point. You got to be about 
you. You got to be about AEW. It should be about how great we are and, and the stuff that we're putting on. I mean, look, commentary on the show say it enough. We have the best fans. We have the best wrestling. There's nothing like AEW. I've never seen this in my life. So be that. Be that publicly. Yeah. Don't be anti-WWE publicly. It's it's especially when you can't back it up. That's the biggest thing. If, if you have something to say and you have proof and you want to show people or or they, WWE something that does something that's really dastardly and deserves scorn, cool. But talking about Twitter bots and booking a show 31 hours before yours that was announced well before yours, it's petty bullshit. It makes you look little. It's it's really just, it's really awful. Um, Chris, and, and there was and there was and one more thing. There was one more thing that Jericho said in his press conference, kind of about this, and it was about the talent meeting and about kind of the the bad locker room right now. And that is Jericho is basically saying, I want the people in AEW here to understand what we've built and how important this is and be in it together and getting, getting over the petty bullshit and understanding what we are as a company. And this was apparently Jared seems like Jericho may have known that the brawl kind of happened at that point. Cause he said something to Tony Khan on his way out. He did. And yeah. again, Jericho, the professional here, the guy whose gimmick right now is anti WWE really in that faction <laughs> was the most, he's the one saying, yeah. right. But, but he's basically being like, guys, it's just a wrestling show. Like let's not lose our shit over this stuff. Understand that we've built a very successful company here, which they have. And it's it, again, it's good that AEW exists. And if these kind of petty things are going to damage the top of the company, that's a problem. And and, and Jericho and is, is saying that about yeah. the talent, but it applies to Tony Khan as well. It absolutely does. And look, in wrestling history, like guys working themselves into a shoot is not new. Like, you know, fake fights becoming real fights happens, right? And I did see that someone was making a comparison saying the closest thing to this was and this is going back to the CM Punk thing. Uh, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, the backstage tussle after the Sunny Days comment that Shawn Michaels made. Mm -hmm. And the person used that to point out that Vince McMahon didn't suspend or punish either of those guys. To me, that's irrelevant as a point. First and foremost, that was more than 25 years ago. Okay. This is 2022, not 1996 or whatever year that was. Times have changed. Work culture has changed. The business of wrestling has changed. Secondly, that was hurt feelings over something that was said on a live mic, not a guy speaking unhinged at a press conference and then throwing a punch backstage. So to me, it, that is not at all analogous. And the second thing here is you may, after hearing what Chris and I have said, you may think, well, okay, Adam and Chris, you guys are so smart. Adam, you went off on this huge rant criticizing Tony, but you're not in his shoes. What would you do in this situation? Folks, this is a tough situation. There's no doubt about that. But the solution isn't really that difficult. Khan was sitting next to Punk during that entire rant. And then he doubled down with, you know, the hilarity and ridiculousness with the WWE comments later. He is the owner. He's been there for everything that's happened backstage and on TV over whatever period of time. So he has full knowledge of that already. He knows the context. The first thing you do is you leave that podium and you do a full investigation of the brawl. Once that's sorted out, you immediately hand down punishments. Then you call another locker room meeting and you do not let any of the active wrestlers talk. Apparently, uh, Kenny Omega spoke and ruffled some feathers last time and other people may have. You don't let any of them talk. That was a huge mistake the first time. 
And then in that meeting, you tell everyone the fun and games are over. We tried it your way, giving you guys significant freedom. Now I'm taking more of the reins. It's still going to be collaborative. You're still going to be heard, but there is a chain of command and my decisions are final. You put greater restrictions over media interviews. You tell talent, we are going to be monitoring how you use social media. And simply put, you lay down the law. It's my way or the highway, like it or not, work here. If not, I'll give you a release and you can work somewhere else. That is what you do in this situation. Otherwise, the inmates are running the asylum. It has never been more true about a professional wrestling company. I was about to say, never been more true than this. It's not true. The inmates ran the asylum in WCW and that yes. contributed to the downfall of WCW. Tony Khan has said numerous times, I'm not going to make the same mistakes WCW is making. Well, dude, this is your chance to prove it. You have to cut this off at the head. And the head of this entire thing is CM Punk, your world champion. So he needs to handle that business, figure out what he's going to do there. Then he needs to figure out what he's going to do about the rest of the roster. But this is a pivot moment for AEW. Either they handle this correctly and Tony Khan becomes a businessman, both in terms of the way he handles CM Punk and the EVPs and all that, and the way he goes about talking about WWE or, or preferably not talking about WWE in the future. Either he makes a 180 here and realizes, I got to treat this like a professional business, not a toy box, as you said, Chris, or he doesn't. And if he doesn't, AEW will fail sooner than later. Yeah, I keep thinking about that doesn't work for me, brother. <laughs> that yeah. was, that from I can't believe I my almost left WCW off there. I, I'm glad I caught myself. <laughs> my, la my, my last thing on this is uh, I really wonder what Cody Rhodes is thinking right now. And because there were reports of him clashing with the elite uh, at times over various things. And there was a clip of him going around back when he was the TNT champion. It might have been a year ago or something like that. And he's asked, what does AEW look like in 2022? And Cody says, I basically says, I think that's when things are going to come to a head because you're going to have guys whose initial contracts are coming up. You're going to have people who said, hi, I was in WWE and I was really over. I should have a top spot. You're going to have the AEW originals who say I should have a top spot and it's going to be a big competition. It's going to get contentious. So he knew this was coming. Cody Rhodes called this like a year or so ago, whenever that clip was, and then that's exactly what you got in that hangman uh, CM Punk feud about him. I'm trying to save AEW from you. And clearly an environment has not been fostered where um, that's kind of in order. And that's, that's up to Tony Khan now. It absolutely is. And, you know, we've talked about it ad nauseum on this podcast, AEW basically signing any former WWE talent that had any value, any legitimate value that wasn't too expensive or, or one of those other things, they signed him. And it I'm not saying it destroyed the roster because it enhanced the roster greatly. I mean, the AEW roster now is really as strong as it's ever been. It's stronger than it's ever been. But by having that significant of an influx of talent, when the roster as it was with like Mox and Jericho and, and then maybe just adding CM Punk, right? And not the other people beyond that was already ridiculously strong. They just added and added and added. And guess what? People who are co-workers together, they're going to stand by each other and they're going to stick up for each other. It's very much like, I'll tell you, I went to a private middle school. I was lucky growing up, right? But then I went to a public high school. Well, guess what? When I went to high school, 
Who did I hang out with my freshman year for the first four months? Everyone from my middle school, because I knew them. And they were the ones I trusted, right? And and these other people, I was still learning to trust them and learning to see how they were as, as potential friends. So it's the same thing that happens in AEW. You stay in your little circles. Now there's a divided locker room. And, and that's not to say that the WWE people are all behind CM Punk. It doesn't seem like that's the case at all. But certainly he has his faction there. FTR, you mentioned. I'm sure there's some others that he's helped along. I think like Danhausen is a big fan of him. Maybe MJF. He speaks very highly of MJF. Adam Cole, he speaks very highly of Adam Cole. So there's a subsection of that locker room that has Punk's back. And it does seem like the vast majority of them don't. Um, because there are most of them, or a, or a good amount of them, are the originals. Tony Khan has to deal with that. Tony Khan has to deal with himself as well. This is a pivot point, a turning point for AEW. They get it right or they don't get it right. But one way or another, what happens now going forward matters. And, you know, I apologize for going off on two rants there, but I had to. It just, I, I've, there's been few times in wrestling where I've been as infuriated as I was seeing the way that press conference was handled. And, and, most of the other times in wrestling that I've been infuriated, it's been WWE. It's either been booking, like Hell in a Cell, Seth Rollins, The Fiend, it set me off the edge, uh, and releases. And we've absolutely trashed them when things like that have happened. But this goes beyond that. I mean, I don't necessarily know that it goes beyond releasing 100 people, but any of those individual pockets of releases, this is just absurd. I mean, that you could at least attribute to business decisions. This is, it's, it's mismanagement. It's lack of respect. It's appalling from both of them. And they just need to be better. As simple as that. Mm -hmm. Uh, All right, Chris, we just went long on everything that happened from that AEW all out uh, post-show press conference, not media scrum. We have a ton to talk about in the world of WWE. That is what this show today is really about. And we are going to get to that right now by sliding into the main event. Now, the main event today is a little bit different than it is normally. Originally, before this stuff happened with AEW, I was going to break down the Triple H interview, the sit down he had with Ariel Helwani. I'm going to save that. We'll talk about that on another show. Uh, Chris was unable to join us for the WWE Clash at the Castle instant analysis. As you guys have heard, uh, there, we had a major upload problem with iTunes for the Clash of the Castle instant analysis. And while the vast majority of you have heard it, some of you still did not hear my takes. Now, we're not going to do the whole instant analysis again, but we do need to get Chris's perspective. It's super important because we need to know where he stands going into our evaluation of WWE going forward. And I do have a couple of points that I wanted to make um, that I didn't get to on the instant analysis because I had to do it so quickly. So what we're going to do is we're going to break down the card again. I'm going to read the results of the matches. Chris is going to give his takes. I may have a follow-up and we're going to move through this rather quickly. And then we will get to the good, the bad, and the ugly, breaking down everything else that happened across SmackDown and Raw over the last week. So Chris, we start with the undisputed WWE Universal Championship. Roman Reigns defended the title, beating Drew McIntyre via pinfall after Solo Sokoa interfered in the finish pulling the referee's leg after McIntyre hit a spear and Claymore. You you skipped uh, maybe the most important part of that, and that was that they brought back Broken Dreams for his entrance. Well, I already did the whole breakdown. I'm trying to make it short. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> but I, 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 I literally said that I did do the Twitter pre-show we did on Saturday, and I said it would be really cool if they brought that back because Drew had tweeted like a lyric of it. Um, and, and so they did that. The crowd was singing along to it. 
that was awesome. Drew's entrance was awesome. Roman's entrance continues to be awesome. I think he may just have generally one of the greatest presentations of any wrestler ever outside of the Undertaker. It's just he always feels like the biggest guy, the final boss every time you see him. The beard is immaculate. Just love <laughs> it. One thing that stuck out about this, uh, a weird thing, it seemed like Charles Robinson was counting a lot faster than WWE has in the past, and I wonder if Triple H has had the referees count faster. I like the faster counts, so I don't know, but I noted that. Um, he also held Drew's arm up and dropped it for a submission, and he kept his arm up. That's something I've talked about for a long time. I'm glad WWE's bringing that back. Drew had some incredible kickouts, some 2.999 type of stuff. And, but more than anything, like, man, I don't know if you're ever going to, if you can build to a bigger moment for a title change than you did on this show. Like the, 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 the home crowd, the singing crowd, the, the t- kind of wrestling crowd you don't get at a WrestleMania. They built Drew up. They gave him the, the video packages. They gave him the broken dreams. They gave us everything you could want. The final moments there where he hits the spear and he hits the hits the um the, the claymore. I was like, this is it, they're gonna do it. And then they don't do it. I was in the press box at Georgia, Oregon, and I did watch this match live. And when he kicked out, or when 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 um the ref got pulled out by Solo Sokoa, I, I literally yelled in the press <laughs> I couldn't believe that they did that. Uh like it makes sense. Solo I said Sakoa, I said another... it was the most false of any false finish. Like they yeah, took it to like, the limit. Of Look, Drew winning, yeah. We have said that the the Usos are the one of the best ever at breaking up a pin at 2.99, and clearly Solo Sokoa has that timing down as well. Runs in the family. Um, man, like, God, like, I just, you're never going to get a bigger moment for Drew to win the title than you will there. The only possibility that you can top this, if like, Roman going down has to be a big moment, and the only way I think you can possibly make it bigger He's Cody Rhodes winning it at WrestleMania along the storyline of, hey, Dusty Rhodes never won the championship. You know, th- this is from my father. That's the moment you get so, to ride into it. But but other than that, but I don't even know if that could top what this moment would have been. This would have been the pop of all pops on a championship win. And I'm just I, I didn't I didn't hate the end, but I didn't love it because I feel like they had a once in a generation moment. So that's the thing in terms of what was wrong here. We go back to the day one decision with Brock Lesnar and then the WrestleMania decision, unifying the titles. Those were really the mistakes, not necessarily having Reigns win this particular match, because if that mistake doesn't, if those mistakes don't happen, then we're not put in this situation where both titles are held. Drew potentially could have had this match against someone else who was the Raw champion, like Seth Rollins. And then he could have won it off him. So you still get the big moment with Drew. Roman's not affected and his title reign's not affected by it. So it really, the problem goes all the way back to January 1st. Not so much the booking in this particular match. But what you said, Chris, is the key. It's, is there going to be a better moment than this? And I think the reason why I initially picked Roman Reigns before I changed my pick was I just, it seemed weird to me that WWE would end a two-year title reign on Saturday afternoon in the United Kingdom. And I know that that may suck for UK fans to hear because it wasn't the afternoon for them. It was the evening and it was prime time and all that. But the majority of WWE's audience in terms of the people that they book for is in the United States. 
And it always just seemed odd. Like that would be the moment on a Saturday afternoon somewhere that Roman Reigns would drop the title, as opposed to when there are more eyeballs on the product than any other time of the year, which is the main event of WrestleMania. So that's why I was always hesitant of it. But the only person left in WWE, and there's plenty of challengers, Seth Rollins, Kevin Owens, Austin Theory, uh, Braun Strowman, who returned Monday night on Raw, uh, Karrion Cross. The, the challengers are lining up, okay, behind Roman Reigns. But the only one that's bigger than Drew potentially is Cody Rhodes, as you mentioned. The problem yeah. is Cody's story is about the title, not about beating Roman specifically. Drew's story was about winning the title, but taking it off of Roman specifically so that it could be defended on both shows. What they should have done is taken it off Reigns, given one of them back to him in a couple of months, and moved forward with Drew as the other champion. You get two moments instead of one. You get Drew McIntyre in this moment, the man's made for life, one of the biggest pops of all time. And then you have Cody, who can still win the title at WrestleMania. He takes it off Seth Rollins or someone else, and it would be just as impactful if not more than Reigns. Remember, Cody wants the WWE Championship, not necessarily the undisputed WWE Universal Championship. That when he came in, that's not what he was talking about. He specifically mentioned the WWE title. He showed images of his father holding the WWE title that he never won. So that's a completely different thing. The reason, though, why Cody and Roman works is because of the familial history. It's not just about the Rhodes family, it's about the Inouye family. So they could potentially tell that story and make this into a huge, epic title match. But that only really makes sense if The Rock is not involved. And still to this day, all reports are that the expectation is we will have Roman Reigns against The Rock on that show. So they either do that night one and save Cody for night two, or they somehow figure out another way to take a title off Roman using the Money in the Bank briefcase, or they introduce a new title for the Raw brand after the draft and Cody is able to go after that. They, they splinter the WWE title off Reigns to do that. I don't know what they're going to do, but it seemed like this was a moment where they could have fixed a lot of the booking errors and they didn't do it. I, by the way, I hate the idea of Roman having two matches at WrestleMania, which I know a lot of people are fantasy booking. I don't. I, I think I think it devalues everything. I don't. If you're going to uh, either he's going to lose the title because of because he's distracted by the Rock, or he's going to lose to the Rock because he had the. So I, what? I, I just so, so he, he fights much. the Rock. It's so too, no, no, no. So, it, it, so he fights the Rock on night one. He beats him. This is God mode. This is the tribal and then chief, he, and the then head he of the loses, table. And then he and then he loses to Cody, but he, he can say, "Oh, I was because I fought the other." So you it give takes so, away from the winner. So you get no, no. The mo so that's where I disagree. The moment is about Cody winning, not Roman losing. It's it's both. No, no, no. It's not. It's not about both. Will have, it, if he will have been the champion for a th almost a thousand days at that point, it's about him losing. If it's if it was to anyone else, I would agree, but in that booking. The moment is about Cody winning. Yes, he overcomes a huge obstacle. Roman having an excuse, who cares at that point? It doesn't matter. Cody Rhodes is your new champion. The storyline is Cody Rhodes wins, ending Roman Reigns' two-year reign. Not, 
oh my God, Roman, six months later when he shows back up on WWE TV, you know, notes that the only reason he lost is because he was tired. He's not going to be on the next Raw saying that and devaluing it. No one's going to mention that until Roman returns four months later. So I, I disagree. I think it's a good way to give him an excuse in kayfabe because the excuse doesn't matter. Cody's the champion. Roman's not going to be on the Raw after WrestleMania at that point. I just who cares? I just don't think I don't think they need any excuses. And it comes back to what last thing I was going to say about Drew and Roman, and that is this match, the the entrance, the the beginning of the match, the fans singing, Drew being taller than Roman and looking down on him, Roman trying to do the shoulder hit and getting bounced off of it. This felt like a bigger match to me than I think any Roman versus Brock match. I thought this was the heavyweight of heavyweightest fights you could possibly imagine. Big meaty men slapping meat out there. I thought this this felt like the biggest like stage, biggest match you could have had. I just thought they built that up perfectly. And and I thought that was the, that was great. All right. Uh, one other note before we get to the next match. The Bloodline now officially has a full Survivor Series team. And that shows in a couple of months. Roman Reigns. Sami Zayn, the honorary, Solo Sokoa, and the Usos. It's five people. We have a real, I mean, we already had a real faction, but we have a real faction with the bloodline. Very excited. Chris, hopefully for the rest of these, we can go a lot shorter. Um, yep, yep. Seth Rollins defeated Matt Riddle via pinfall after playing on his emotions and hitting two stomps. The only thing I wanted to say is I wanted to, um, I gave this five stars on the show. I, I went overboard. Um, it wasn't a five-star match. It was four, five, four, seven, five on rewatch. Still exceptional, not five stars. I just wanted to clarify that. Go ahead. Commentary really tried to emphasize Riddle snapping basically at the end, but he didn't really all that much other than he tried to get a chair, which happens like all the time in these wrestling matches. It happened in the main event. It was weird for Riddle to come out like SpongeBob shorts and cheery. And then immediately the match starts and he wants to kill Seth, but then it's a normal wrestling match. I just thought the tone was very, very just kind of off about the whole thing, but the right man won. And my only note is on Raw, I just wanted to note they showed footage after Clash at the Castle with Riddle really angry. He let Rollins take advantage of his emotions. He demanded a rematch as soon as possible. Rollins laughed at the idea of a rematch, saying he beat him clean and accomplished his goal. Riddle was acting uh, really well in this entire thing. I thought it was just solid on his part. And I like that this is the inverse of the Cody Rhodes feud, where Rollins kept wanting rematches there. Cody was trying to say no. And now it's Riddle wanting a rematch and Rollins saying no. So I just wanted to point that out. Uh, Intercontinental Championship, Gunther defeated Sheamus via pinfall with a lariat. My notes that I wanted to add, um, five stars, no doubt, on this match. I rewatched it, not changing my grade there. And it was really cool that WWE gave Sheamus his due, not by just letting him get the huge pop after the match, but replaying that on Raw Monday night to show fans who may have missed it. Yes, and that they showed it live during it, as opposed to going to some commercial or, or something like that. During mm -hmm. that. Um, so that was great. Yeah, five-star match. Everything we hoped for. Gunther now seems like the big bad that he should be. The boss. Yeah. I love I love that Imperium is back. I don't watch NXT, so I can't speak much of Fiji and whatever his gimmick is down there. But I love Imperium. It sets up a great three on three. The only thing I would have changed was I would have brought back Symphony Number no. 9 as their theme song. Like... If you could imagine that UK crowd singing yeah. the song for the entrance would have been an incredible scene. I, do, I hate that they changed Walter slash Gunther's slash Imperium's theme from that because it's I know it's like a general song. But the new theme is good. Like, it's fine. But it like, I thought Symphony Number no. 9 was perfect. It oh, always yeah. gets the crowds into it. It feels like a big 
big thing coming. I just in that moment, it would have been really cool to see that with that entrance for sure. Big meaty man slapping meat. <laughs> we have to respect the meat slapping. Five stars, five slabs of beef. Fantastic. SmackDown Women's Championship. Liv Morgan defeated Shayna Baszler via pinfall with Oblivion. It was fine. Good to see Liv get a clean win. Not much other than that. All right. Damage Control defeated Bianca Belair, Asuka, and Alexa Bliss with Bailey pinning Belair after a three-on-one attack on the champion ended the match. I actually adjusted this up. I was at 3.75 B+. I moved it up to four stars and an A-. And Dakota Kai was the MVP of this entire match. She was awesome. Yep. Obviously the right winners. Love the crowd interactions with Bailey. Love the way Bailey kind of reacted to it. Would tag in, would tag out, not let them get into it. Great little back and forth there. Uh, pinning Bianca was interesting in the moment, but then you realize, oh, it kind of sets up Bailey versus Bianca. So uh, definitely worked. Yeah, it was three on one, and she took. It was a huge excuse for her to, to lose, and mm-hmm. Raw followed it up in a great way on Monday night. We'll talk about that later. Uh, Edge and Ray Mysterio defeated Judgment Day via pinfall with Dominic Mysterio turning on Edge with a low blow, and then his father with a lariat after the bell. I don't know why Edge and Ray needed to win this. Edge has now beaten Judgment Day three times, twice with Dominic and now with and, Rey Mysterio. And, and Rey Mysterio has beaten them three times now. Yeah, I it's so like I just I didn't think they needed to win for any reason. Um but all, uh, the Dominic turn huge lariat nailed that. Mm-hmm. Crowd went nuts what they which they needed. This thing like a day later had more than a million views on the WWE YouTube channel. By far the most viewed thing on the um, WWE YouTube channel. So they got something there with that. The, saw, the the image of Judgment Day laughing at it was hysterical. Yes. Judgment Day seemed, the Judgment Day seemed to really have a good time together, the three of them. It's working. Which is why I want yeah. them to have success. I don't like that they keep losing because I think they've got really good chemistry here. Yeah. And you could, you could have, done that entire thing the same and just had the judgment day win. Like yep. it, it was kind of weird to see judgment day laughing considering they had just lost. That was kind of the only annoying part. Yeah. But I mean, they were, they were laughing at edge and Ray Mysterio, not so much yeah. that, but they're amazing. Uh, you're right. There's something there. And guess what? They now have four people, which makes them a faction judgment day, an official faction, uh, TM, uh, mad cat Moss and the street profits defeated Austin theory and alpha Academy via pinfall on the kickoff show. Did not even see this, so I have no oh, thoughts. You should watch it. The finish is really, really good to this, so you should definitely go and watch that. Uh, I didn't realize this until after the fact. It's the only other note I have on Clash of the Castle. Every single person from the United Kingdom and Ireland lost on the show. So there was not a single hometown slash Europe uh, victory pop. Not Drew, Sheamus, Balor. Out of the six main matches, four of them had heels winning, and there were no title changes. I did say this on the instant analysis. This ended up being more like a super showdown card than it was a premium monthly live event. It was still supremely entertaining, but it really could have been done better. They it, Ideally, there should have been a situation where there was that one moment where you got a huge fan pop for someone locally. And yes, Drew did get a huge pop. And yes, Sheamus did as well, but both came in losing efforts. And yes, also... Gunther is European. He's just not from the United Kingdom. So it, it is. I, I'm 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 going to rewatch that Drew uh, Roman match all the time because it's everything I love about pro wrestling and everything. The the environments, the energy, the big fight feel, the false finishes at the end. Absolutely loved every single thing about that. I didn't love showing the singing. Same on the pay per view. 
it was a very, very weird end to the show. So, I'm fine with doing it. Just don't air it. I can do actually a little bit of reporting on that. Um, I reached out to find out, hey, did WWE screw up? Did they leave it on the air? Kind of like Drew McIntyre said, hey, is this still on the air, right? Um, that was purposeful. They wanted it this way. And, you know, they did what they did. So um, I thought it was a downer. And if it was off air and they released it on social media, fine. Um, but doing it on the premium live event, that was the wrong decision, as you pointed out. All right, we have a lot of show left. We are now going to break down everything that happened across Raw and SmackDown this week the way we always do. In the good, the bad, and the ugly. Another very storyline-heavy week, mostly because it was building to Clash at the Castle and WWE was coming out of it. As I said uh, previously on this show, I have cut down my match breakdowns. Unfortunately, there was so much storyline that some of these still do have a lot of explanation. We are going to start, shockingly, with the Viking Raiders versus New Day in a Viking rules match on SmackDown. This was so much cooler than I expected with the stipulation and the setup. It was no holds barred, falls count anywhere with tornado rules. There was an entire Viking set with the a hull of a ship, shields, weapons, flags in the corners, LED boards around the ring were moving water. So it seemed like the ship was on the sea. Very cool visuals. Uh, New Day hit a double tope con hero before Kofi Kingston hit a barricade frog splash on Ivar. Xavier Woods splashed the Vikings off the barricade into the crowd before Ivar hit a running crossbody into Woods onto the barricade for a near fall. Kofi grabbed the hammer of Thor with uh, a unicorn handle and he hit Eric over the head with it. I thought that's the end of the match. He just hit him with what they were calling a sledgehammer. <laughs> that was a near fall. Um, New Day grabbed two tables, which is what the crowd really wanted. Eric body slammed Ivar into Kofi on the ship. Woods took Eric out with the step through tornado DDT for a near fall. Woods ate the avalanche world's strongest slam, but Kofi flew in with a double stomp to break the count. New Day then hit Eric with an inverted Russian leg sweep, smashing a chair in half. Ivar then splashed all of them to break the count. Ivar went to the very top for an insanely impressive moonsault, but Kofi rolled away and hit a splash before Woods hit a springboard diving elbow. Eric broke it up. New Day jumped off the boat to splash the Raiders. Kofi then got spiked into the hole. Woods went to powerbomb Eric through the stack tables, but Ivar hit him with one of the shields and then threw the shield at Kofi, knocking him off the ropes like a pinball. Then Woods ate a double powerbomb called Ragnarok uh, through the tables for the one, two, three. This was a phenomenal TV match. The rules, the set, the wrestling. It went like 22 minutes. And honestly, I could have watched it for another 22. The right team won, given the Raiders are in the process of ascending in the division and getting rebuilt. The only negative was the two commercial breaks. You put that on a PLE, it gets an even higher grade. But for a TV match, 4.25 stars and an A, it was beyond excellent and obviously good. Yeah, look, I've been not into this for a very long time, but this was a lot of fun. It was both fun and enough intensity, and I appreciated the effort put into it, like you said, with the LED boards and everything. So, uh, yeah, definitely giving this a good. I am forgetting who it was, and I'm very sorry, but I did have uh, a DM that came in over the weekend. They're like, I agreed with Chris and not you about this whole feud for a long time. But he's like, but hey. that match totally sold me. Oh. It totally turned me <laughs> yeah. on a dime about the entire thing. Exactly. I agree. 
Yeah. Uh, all right. So over on Raw, we had a tag team championship, number one contendership. New Day versus Alpha Academy versus Los Lotharios versus Street Profits. And right off the bat, the Viking Raiders just beat New Day. So why the hell is New Day in this match and the Viking Raiders are not? Did not make a shred of sense. Just right off the beginning. Um, this was the inferior rules, only two legal men at a time. But because they did that rule, a minute into the match, both New Day members ended up as the legal men. And Xavier Woods purposely laid down for Kofi to like finger poke of doom style to try to steal the win before others broke it up. I thought this was against the rules because both men on one team couldn't be legal at the same time. But our listener, a uh, longtime listener, Mick Foley's Missing Teeth, who I mentioned all the time, uh, pointed out that the New Age Outlaws did this before in like 1998. Yep. And he was right. Yep. I went back and saw that. Yep, yep. I remember that. Uh, either way, it was funny as hell and really inventive to bring that back. We haven't seen that in a long time. Uh, Angelo Dawkins pounced Kofi over the ropes in a trust valve and leapfrogged Chad Gable before hitting a Tope Con Hero and a ton of guys. There was a great sequence with Umberto getting a moonsault thwarted by double boots, only to bounce into Gable's arms for a German suplex. Los Lotharios did stereo moonsaults outside. Montez Ford hit Otis with the frog splash. Gable broke the fall with an ankle lock when suddenly Braun Strowman's music hits. Strowman storms to the ring wearing really tight red pants. The crowd popped massively. Braun destroyed all of the heels and the security guards. He speared Otis through the barricade. And then he hit a running power slam on Dawkins through the announce table, which was weird because he didn't touch any of the other baby faces except Dawkins in that one moment. The crowd kept going wild. He kept celebrating. Raw very smartly stayed in picture in picture as Braun power slammed Gable in the ring. Then it remained on him walking backstage. So you saw him before, during, and after the commercial, which was really, really smart. And then later backstage, he said the monster of all monsters is back and would be on SmackDown. Other than Dawkins, like I said, he didn't touch the rest of the faces, meaning New Day or Montez Ford. And I just wish he hadn't touched Dawkins but I guess they wanted more than one move on a big man. They already used Otis and he was the other big man available. The entertainment level of this was high. And if you need to bring Braun back, it has to be in a way where he's destroying a ton of people. But given WWE and its tag team division are so incredibly thin, having Strowman completely erase a number one contenders match and letting commentary sell him destroying four teams when he only actually destroyed two and a half. It made the division look awful. I would have rather seen him confront Bobby Lashley after the US title match or have Omas do an open challenge with Strowman answering it and Omas backing down. I get WWE wanted this spectacle, but it came off at a really high cost. I'm not saying it was terrible, but it erased a really good tag team match. It hurt the teams that were involved. And then there was no resolution. They didn't say, you know what? We're going to run this match back again next week and come to a real finish. So because of all of that, even though I'm glad Strowman's back and we can talk about the benefits of that in a moment, for this segment, I'm actually going to go with bad. Oh, a lot of Raw felt like the old Vince era Raw. And this was part of that. To have him come in and run through your tag team division almost entirely on his own um disappointing that said braun looked incredible he did like better than he's ever looked he's clearly been controlling that narrative pretty well and i'm excited to see him and the crowd popped huge for him and i think there's a lot of different things you can do and i'm curious to see where it goes 
I'm going to give it a light good for that reason. And partly because there's not much of a tag team division to really destroy. It's not like the tag division was in a great spot and he did this. Um, so I'll, uh, I'll give it a good. Okay. Fair enough. I, you know, I, I had, I looked at this more from the booking perspective than the entertainment value. If, if you're talking about this entertainment value alone, it's good. No question. But mm-hmm. what it did from a booking perspective, especially when this guy's going to show up on SmackDown and be a SmackDown superstar, it just, it for me, I, I would not have done it that way. There were better I, ways. I was, th- I was thinking and hoping we were going to get Braun interfering in like three matches and destroying people. They could I, have honestly, done. I think it, they could have done. I, honestly, that. I think it would have been more. I think it would have been more effective. They could have done that. They could have done a the heel versus heel tag team match, and rather than had it go seventeen minutes. It goes seven minutes and then Braun just interrupts and kills all four of those guys. There were even using the same formula, they could have executed it in a way that didn't kill an entire division. There's only like, I mean, I guess technically with Hit Row and Maximum Male Models, there's probably now seven or eight tag teams, but both of those are low card teams. So there's only really like six legitimate tag teams in WWE that you could buy as champions. And he destroyed in kayfabe four of them in that moment. It's just... It's not how you treat a division. And Triple H has done a really good job with almost every division in the company right now, except really the tag team division that we're still kind of seeing, well, who's going to challenge the Usos because there's really no babyface teams right now uh, that, that, that are not New Day and Street Profits, both of whom have already lost to the Usos and don't really have a claim for another championship opportunity. Uh, in terms of Strowman re-signing before we move on, total no-brainer as far as I'm concerned. In our multiple conversations about the list of WWE releases. There were like five names that you and I came up with where we said, these don't make a shred of sense. He was on that list of five names. Braun is extremely unique. He is a true big man who can move and wrestle. I know you love Omos and hopefully you're coming around to my side on Omos. But if you look at Omos or Satnam Singh or whoever, those guys just can't move. They don't have that same athleticism, even if they have the size and presence. In many ways, Braun is one of a kind. He has the size, the strength, and the agility. And if you're WWE, which has always been a big man company, you got to have the number one big man with those characteristics on your team. And some, you may say, well, what about Wardlow? Wardlow is great. He has those same characteristics. He's not as big as Braun is. It's as simple as that. So Strowman, re-signing him, I don't agree with his political views and some of his other shit. You can't agree with everyone. Getting him in the company from a talent entertainment perspective, smart move. And you saw the crowd reaction. There was never a point where the crowd has soured on Braun Strowman. Heel, face, they love cheering for him. They ooh and ah at his feats of strength. Bringing him back, total no-brainer. Yep, there were reports at the time. I think he had, people thought he got fired because he contract was too expensive and that may have been the case that money yeah yeah so he, he, but he he's he was always naturally a wwe guy good to see him back there absolutely uh ronda rousey made her entrance on smackdown holding a letter from wwe headquarters she introduced adam pierce to read it and antagonized him while he was the letter said rousey's behavior has been unprofessional but not illegal it said she should not have been arrested and she should remain on probation but her suspension is officially over pierce was pissed off He said if it was up to him, he'd have fired her. Rousey asked how he could be surprised that WWE wanted the most recognizable female athlete in the world on their show. She told him to kiss her ass. Pierce then went on an awesome rant about working his ass off for the last few years, not even getting a thank you, blah, blah, blah. Pierce said Rousey's the single biggest bitch he's ever met. 
but then he apologized for stepping over the line. Rousey did a short arm clothesline and an arm bar on him before Pierce cowered in the corner. Michael Cole immediately pointed out that she assaulted a WWE official while on probation, which would have been a storyline hole. So he pointed it out. Um, he said, that's a problem. And I just appreciated how they addressed it immediately in the moment. This was probably one of the one or two best segments Rousey has been involved in with a microphone. She sounded natural and believable the entire time. Pierce cut one of the best promos of the entire week. Any brand, he was outstanding. And it was so smart to finally have him snap after all of these years of abuse from Sonya Deville, from the other wrestlers, etc. The whole thing worked. Plus, they put Liv Morgan on the show earlier so Rousey did not eat her pop again. Every single part of this worked. It was very good. Yep, absolutely. Very good. Pierce Pierce has been maybe the most unheralded guy in WWE for the last few years. He is so good in that authority role, finding the line between uh, putting forth his authority, but also being a little scared at times and like saying things that make common sense. Um, he's been wonderful. I'm glad he got to do that promo because he's he's um he's great. And and Ronda was obviously very good here too. I still don't really know where all this is going. It's getting a little convoluted now, but it's interesting. It's entertaining, and Ronda's doing a good job at it. So good. Well, I hope the goal is to give Rousey either another suspension or figure out a way to separate her so she's not in the title picture. And I would hope that they can do it so fans forget that she's owed a match. Then she can feud with someone else instead, or perhaps pick up the what's left of Shayna Baszler after losing to Liv, and they can go in the tag team division and be a legitimate team that beats a couple people on SmackDown and eventually gets an opportunity there. I just hope they figure out a way to not make Rousey a facsimile of the man, because Becky is coming back sooner than later, and when she does, she's going to have that gimmick. Yep. Yep, I don't really know. Again, I don't exactly know where it's going, but it's been good so far, so I'll take it. One more thing on this. Uh, just so everyone knows, Adam Pierce is younger than Edge, Rey Mysterio, Bobby Lashley, Brock Lesnar, and a lot of other people who have wrestled in WWE recently. I would love to see him get in the ring for one or two matches. I know he had the thing with Roman Reigns. That was bullshit. This is a former five-time NWA world champion. Let's just freaking wrestle. We're wrestlers in a wrestling ring. Let's just freaking wrestle. I want Adam Pierce in a match, a real match, and I want to see it. Uh, Michael Cole on SmackDown narrated a video for the women's tag team champions. They replayed the match, but did not address Aaliyah pinning the wrong woman. This is on SmackDown. They had a chance again on Raw before the new champions defended the titles. They didn't address it either. So I assumed it just would not be part of kayfabe, though that did change later. So on Raw, we had a women's tag team championship match where Kel Rodriguez and Aaliyah defending against Nikki Ash and Dewdrop. Aaliyah took Nikki out with the Fez press off the steps, and Raquel pulled Dewdrop off the middle ropes for a monstrous Texana bomb, Tahana bomb, excuse me, and the title retention in four minutes as damage control watched from backstage. It made no sense for the heels to get this title match when they just lost the NXT women's tag team title opportunity they had at Worlds Collide. And WWE is now respecting continuity between the brands. And then the match is four minutes, which is absurd. I could understand if it was a regular women's tag team match and they were just kind of getting through it to put something on TV. But a title match should at least get eight minutes, 
if there's a booking reason to do so. The finish was awesome. It made Raquel look like a beast, but I'm sorry, the booking was bad. Yeah, bad for all those reasons you said. He could like could have made it a championship contenders match for whatever reason. Um, I, I generally, you know, the Tahana bomb on Dewdrop, Raquel lifting her up, very impressive. You know, that's kind of the big spot. I liked it. I get it. But um, yeah, just there wasn't much to it. Bad. By the way, this was the only women's match on the show. Now there was a long. Uh, women's segment that we're going to talk about in a moment. But in terms of matches, this was the only match on the show and it got four minutes on a three-hour Raw, which is just ridiculous. WWE also did another universe-building bit as Damage Control was shown walking backstage while Nikki removed her mask and threw it at Dewdrop. So that was just something to note before we get on to the next segment. Damage Control came out with an abbreviated name, uh, CTRL for the control part, and red and black graphics, instead of the yellow and black ones, they used a Clash of the Castle. I thought it was weird that they didn't have it ready for Clash of the Castle, but they did for Raw. A commentary explained that Bianca Belair was pinned at that show for the first time in 10 months. How long, Chris, have I been talking about WWE just inserting notable statistics into storylines to enhance booking? They did it here. They did it on Worlds Collide, showing the winning percentages of Braun Breaker and Tyler Bate before their match. I just loved that. It was perfectly done. So exciting. they all they also did it. I'm sorry to interrupt. You. That's OK. They also they also did it as Roman entered the ring for the Drew match. They said he hasn't been pinned since uh, December 2019. Oh, interesting. OK, I didn't even notice that. That's good. Uh, EO Sky said that they would win the tag team titles next week. Dakota Kai pointed out that the champions were illegitimate because they pinned an illegal woman. So after not mentioning it on SmackDown and glossing over it early on Raw, she brought it up. Bailey then bragged about beating Belair. Bianca challenged immediately. Bailey said she doesn't work on Labor Day, which was really funny. Uh, Belair said she was delusional because it took three of them to beat her. And she said, you're not in control until you're champion. The heel stalked but didn't attack. Bailey said she had nothing to prove. And Belair's fragile ego just couldn't handle taking the L. Bailey said they are focused on the tag team titles. But when she wants Belair's title, she will take it. This was a perfect segment. Damage control remains awesome. Bailey taking a backseat and putting the focus on the tag team was so refreshing. The best part, though, was Belair. We have talked about her being one of one in the ring, and she's unique, and there's never been a woman like her and may never be a wo- another woman like her, or at least there isn't one yet out there. But we've also noted the one thing she can do better is improve on the mic. This is the first time I noticed her completely owning the crowd. She had them in the palm of her hand. They were hanging on every single word she said. And the way she delivered her promo, she executed pops at individual moments when she wanted them. It was awesome to see her take control and make that happen. And she has now ascended. She already was amazing in the ring. She has now ascended to being someone that you can fully trust to carry a segment on the mic. Great work by all four women here. And if you can't already tell, good. Definitely a good, definitely a great promo from Bianca. She's always a lot better playing off of people or having the conversation promos as opposed to come into the ring by yourself and talk about the match you just had and your upcoming match, that kind of boring stuff. She's she's always been a lot better in these situations and she executed it great. Definitely a good. Damage Control is getting the tag team title match next week, which given this string of runs and returns and debuts that we've seen recently, and we didn't see Sasha Banks and Naomi at Clash of the Castle. Assuming they have re-signed, 
you could definitely see a situation where they win those titles off of Raquel Rodriguez and Aaliyah and Sasha Banks and Naomi return on Raw next week. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm just saying it's kind of set up where it's a possibility. Uh, and someone and someone also pointed out on Twitter, and I'm curious, you know, that Monday Night Raw next week is the first one that goes up against Monday Night Football. Ooh, and good call. And are we going to get some leaked stories later in the week about Sasha Naomi potentially being at Raw to kind of drum up some interest for it? Uh, so don't be surprised, maybe, if we see it later in this week. But uh, that's going to be another reason to wonder if that's going to happen. Fantastic call. I didn't even think about that. Uh, Edge opened Raw talking to Dominic Mysterio on the mic, calling back to their deep personal history and saying he always felt like a nephew to him. He again apologized for the accidental spear a few weeks ago. He said he helped the Mysterios because Judgment Day's existence was his own fault. He said Ray can deal with Dom however he wants, but Edge wants to treat him like a man and a WWE superstar and beat his ass. Ray entered instead, trying to apologize on Dom's behalf. Edge said Dom is old enough to drink, old enough to drive, and old enough to atone for his own actions. And instead of Dominic, Rhea Ripley came out instead, saying they both deserved it for trying to replace and protect Dom. Then Ripley said, I made him a man. Congratulations, Dom. Uh, And Dom then entered in all black with that awful mullet that he has slicked all the way back. Ray urged Dom to make it right. Ripley said it was too late. Ray then told Edge, do what you have to do, as Dom ignored his father pleading for him not to go through with it. Finn Balor and Damian Priest attacked from behind. Edge held his own until Dom chop blocked his leg. Then Dom stopped Ray from re-entering the ring as Ripley threw him into the steel steps. Edge ate south of heaven from Priest. Then Balor attacked Edge's knee with a steel chair and hit coup de gras onto the chair, which looked very dangerous, but he did it. Uh, to end the segment, as Ray got back inside the ring to kind of ward them off. This both worked and didn't for me. Uh, it made sense, but simultaneously was disjointed. What I liked least was the really trite booking of Edge taking an injury to explain a multi-month absence until the next big show. Except he's wrestling next week against Dominic, so I don't really know why they did that. Maybe to give him an excuse when he loses a match to Dominic or something like that. I don't know, but... You know, it was a week or two ago in Toronto where Edge came out and basically said, I'm going to do this for another year and then I'm going to retire. And given that this has already been a multi-month storyline that has no end in sight, it just feels like they're wasting opportunities for Edge to have all of these dream matches that are still possible with people on the roster for the sake of getting Dominic Mysterio over. So it's just kind of frustrating from me. What was necessary here was Dom joining Judgment Day because it's helping him grow as a performer. Eddie Guerrero has to be smiling down, knowing that he sided with his mamacita as opposed to his father and his (laughs) quote unquote uncle. Uh, Edge's promo was great to open the entire thing. Ray played his role well. And guess what? With four members, as I said earlier, Judgment Day is officially a faction. So I am staying with good. I'm not going bad, but I did have some issues with the booking on this. It was good. My biggest takeaway was that it furthered my belief coming out of Clash of the Castle that you should have just had Judgment Day win there. Absolutely. Like, they've lost so many times. I don't want to see these sides interact anymore. And and the get edge to do some dream matches thing. I've I've had that problem with his basically entire return since he's come back. He's always in these long feuds with the same people for a while. 
I don't think we've gotten Edge versus Finn Balor yet out of this whole thing, if I recall correctly. Like, I don't think so. I, I'm just, yeah, I'm like, I just, I just want to see Edge do, just do the farewell tour. I don't need him in this thing anymore. I understand that he explained Judgment Day is my fault, but what exactly is the problem? You keep beating them. They're not a threat. So like, just get Judgment Day to go off and do their own thing. I, Judgment Day should be interfering with all kinds of people doing a lot of things. This this is dragged on for too much. You know what they need to do? But I did. They need to do the draft and move them to SmackDown. Have Judgment Day. You have yeah. obviously the Bloodlines there. Uh, you have Hit Row. You have Maximum Male. I mean, I'm not saying that those two are you know, yeah, notable we'll big factions. Who knows? The point is, move them over there is what they should do. Yeah, I just I'd like to see both of these people move on to do different things. Now, I thought the segment was good, but I'm not looking forward to you know, another month build of Judgment Day in the Mysterios. Yeah. So Dom here reminded me of uh, one of my friends who, born in South Florida, raised in South Florida, who just out of college, he started dating a girl from New Jersey. This was in like the mid 2000s. Out of nowhere one day, we all are like meeting up for dinner and he walks in wearing an affliction shirt. Why? Because she bought it for him and he would never <laughs> buy it in a million years. It had the studs on it, uh, the bedazzling and all that. That was Dom here with Ripley. So I just laughed so much that like you get a new girlfriend and she completely changes you. So it was just really funny hearkening back to that. Um, we also had Ray versus Damian Priest on the show. Backstage later, Ray was dismayed at what went down. He challenged any member of Judgment Day one-on-one. Priest came down. Uh, Judgment Day followed a few minutes later. Ray hit a tornado DDT on a hurricanrana out of the corner. Priest avoided 619, countered with a huge roundhouse kick. Dom then jumped on the apron to stop another 619. Balor and Ripley distracted Ray as Priest did a huge lariat and South of Heaven for the win in 13 minutes. I really think it's cool, by the way. Priest now has three finishers. Like, he has won matches with three different moves lately, and that's awesome that they're building him up that way. Uh, after the bell, Ripley said, what Poppy wants, Poppy gets, referring to herself, before challenging Edge on behalf of Dominic for next week. Look, it was a well-booked heel faction win. The wins like this go back, you know, what? 80 years probably in wrestling, maybe maybe a little bit less, but still. Uh, and Priest getting the W after losing to Edge a couple of weeks ago, that was really smart booking to build him up. It was also incredibly cool that Ripley's really emerged as like the de facto leader of Judgment Day. We've seen women have prominent roles in factions before, but I don't ever think we've seen a woman who's a wrestler be the leader of a faction and the main person on the mic. It's disappointing that Balor is kind of marginalized here because he really is the top dog of a group from talent experience, you know, even faction leadership experience. He really should be the leader of the entire thing. But Ripley with the mic directing everything is so refreshing. The match was good. That stuff was good too. Yep, match was good and enjoyed it. Um, the Rhea Ripley stuff, it, it, it's kind of, it feels a lot like Triple H, Shawn Michaels in China when, when DX would hype her up and, and stuff like that, except for she's doing even more. Like you said, she's directing some things. Yeah, China never spoke, don't forget, for a long no, time. No, right, right, right. <laughs> so it, 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 it's, it's like that, but it's even more. She, she, she's a leader, but she's also kind of like the muscle a bit as well. And I, I just, I think it all works really well. Again, like I said before, I love the Judgment Day together. They seem to be having a great time. It's working, yeah. But you got to get them some wins and you got to get them doing some new things. It's working better now than it ever has before. I think that's probably like, the biggest takeaway of the entire thing. Um, there was a United States Championship match, Bobby Lashley against The Miz inside a steel cage on Raw. Uh, Miz again refused to answer questions about Dexter Loomis while in the parking lot. He refused to even say his name, saying all he did was go home and see his family last week. Then he and Tommaso Ciampa, yes, 
Tommaso Ciampa, he got his name back as well, came across an upturned car smoking in the parking lot and got rattled by it. This was a really fun red herring because you thought it was Loomis when it was actually Strowman, you know, that it was referring to. <laughs> they refused to answer the same question later with Ciampa saying Miz wanted the steel cage stipulation not to keep out the man they will not name, but rather because he knows he can beat Lashley one-on-one. This was the main event of Raw. Before the bell, Miz stole the title and beat Lashley with it. He and Champa pulled him outside, destroyed him into the cage. Miz rammed his arm with the steel steps. Champa smashed the same arm with a steel chair during commercial break. And then after five minutes of a beatdown at ringside, they were back in the ring. The bell rang. Miz got a near fall right away. Lashley got up on Miz quickly. He was able to escape Hurtlock, Miz was, by attacking the arm. Champa swung a chair as Lashley was climbing. Miz had a running knee for a near fall. Champa tried to help Miz escape over the top. Miz ate a superplex. Miz dodged Lashley, putting his spear into the cage and then hitting skull crushing finale. But Lashley kicked out flat at 2.5. Lashley blocked Champa from slamming the cage door on him. But Miz climbed over Lashley and slammed Lashley with the cage door 10 times from inside the ring. And then he tried to escape over the top on the other side. But as he did, Dexter Loomis appeared from underneath the ring, sliding out, looking up at him. Distracted, Miz screamed at him, ran back into the ring, ate the spear, and lost in 15 minutes. Loomis then climbed over the cage wall. Miz tried to escape through the door, but Lashley slammed it on him. Miz locked him in silence, and commentary did not call out the finisher or the submission move, which was disappointing. Uh, But he put Miz to sleep, and then he started stroking his hair as Raw went off the air. There wasn't much of a pop to Loomis submitting him um, from the crowd. The ending, because of that, was rather muted, but it was an extremely well-booked cage match from a chicken shit heel standpoint. They've done a really good job with Loomis's booking to this point. But as was the issue in NXT, once the novelty wears off, there's kind of only so far to go with him. Still, this was good. And the visual, the camera shot of Miz climbing over the top and then the camera turning and panning down and Loomis just stand, uh, laying there underneath the ring, kind of with his hands on his hips, outstanding, one of the best wrestling camera shots of the entire year. Yeah, I'm giving this a good, but it it all just felt kind of strange. Lashley is again playing like second fiddle as the champion in his storyline. I don't know why Miz, did, did they explain why Miz got another title shot? Yeah, he basically said that uh, last week, you know, there was the interruption in it uh, and then he got screwed by Loomis basically. So he, yeah. he wanted Lashley one-on-one and he wanted him inside a steel cage, not to prevent Loomis's interaction, but to make sure that no one yeah. else could get involved. So the, the, the real I, question isn't why Miz got this match. It's why Miz got the first title match. That didn't make sense. Yeah, I, and, and this isn't relative to this match, but I, it, it's something I've just long had an issue with ever since Roman has had both titles is that the biggest story coming out of Clash of the Castle is Roman Reigns' bloodline, and we just we don't get an acknowledgement on Raw, and it makes Raw feel smaller it makes it feel like the clear b show and it's very tough when it's the first show after pay-per-views this match was fine enjoyed it the camera shot with loomis was really good i just don't know where this is going what like why did if loomis is still stalking miz why did he let him go after he kidnapped him can't is there a statue well, we don't know no we don't know what's happening when when they're together off screen that's that's the whole point. Right, We're going to find but out. Clearly let, but he clearly let him go and then let himself get arrested at NXT. Well, I mean, he's not trying to murder the guy. So No, I don't know what's going on. And at some right. point, I so need an explanation. Yeah, the, that, of course, that's, that's like, the story. 
is there a statute of limitations on when Ms. Cannon cannot press charges? I don't know. No, like, he refuses like- to press charges, and that's part of the storyline. That they asked, "Hey, why haven't what, you know?" Last week, um, Ms. Yeah, was pissed off. You have to remember what the storyline was. Ms. was pissed off last week that he was on Raw and given a match with Bobby Lashley, and he goes, "Why did you give me the match to Adam Pierce?" And Adam Pierce goes, "Well, you didn't press charges on Dexter Loomis, so we think you're right. okay to compete, so we put you in a match." That's part right. of it. We just him refusing to press charges, him refusing to say what happened, him refusing why? to mention him by name. Do we know why. We're to find out. It's a storyline. It's just it's very it's a very weird sequence of events that we've got. Like this guy kidnapped him, let him go. Guess and what? Might try to kidnap him again. I don't know. It's just weird. Guess what? <laughs> a, it's sports entertainment. B, Dexter Loomis is a weird AF character. That's the whole point. Yeah, but shouldn't I mean shouldn't security at WWE be beefed up a little yes. bit around Miz even if he didn't press charges be. like I don't know it's just of course it should be like it was fine yeah. it was good I just it's very weird that like Miz maybe gets kidnapped again as the main event of your Monday Night Raw coming off of Clash at the Castle I just thought that was don't cool. forget though the main event of Raw is no longer the main event it's the yeah, 9 p.m. hour true. type of you know thing the 9 to 10 is the main event now not the 10.55 to 11 p.m. what happens in those final five minutes. So it's this is usually the second show um, or, or the second major storyline in the show or a, a, any second storyline that they find to be important. That's why the women's match main evented last week. It's why this main evented this week. That's the way they're booking it. It's, you know, it's what it is. Uh, Austin Theory was angry at getting knocked out by Tyson Fury at Clash of the Castle. Theory said he's glad Reigns is champion because Drew McIntyre embarrassed himself and he wants to end the two-year reign himself. Theory flubbed his promo multiple times and he sold a jaw injury every time he flubbed. It was tough to tell whether he was actually screwing up like in reality or he was like kayfabing it that he got knocked loose and his head wasn't together from the punch. If it wasn't planned, Theory did a really good job of covering up his mistakes by selling the punches, like knocking him loose. Um, So just credit to him for thinking on the spot like that, even though he potentially flubbed stuff. Or if it was planned booking, then great job of him making it seem like it was real or just him screwing up. Uh, Kevin Owens said a line about arrogant and delusional people, which to me was an offhanded reference to CM Punk. Then he made fun of Theory getting knocked out, flubbing the show name and getting his first name back. KO said Fury did him a favor because Reigns or McIntyre would have taken advantage. He wouldn't even have the briefcase anymore. Theory said KO was jealous because he hasn't won a title in years. KO said he had Reigns beaten if Jey Uso and Paul Heyman hadn't gotten involved. And he would even have the Money in the Bank briefcase if they actually put him in that match. Theory said he's the handpicked future and Owens is trying to stay relevant. Owens said, no shit, I'm trying to stay relevant. That's why I'm so good. And yes, Theory, you were the handpicked future, but you aren't anymore. Owens then predicted a referee would run out and they would fight. A referee ran out and they fought. So it was KO and Theory. Owens hit a frog splash off the apron. Theory got knees up on a senton splash off the apron. Back inside, Owens hit a swanton bomb. Theory caught him with a spinning power bomb. Theory avoided a pop-up powerbomb, putting Owens into the post and then throwing him backward into the pointy part of the steel steps in a really sick spot. KO beat the count and ate a hooked leg backbreaker, but he came back with the avalanche fisherman's buster and the pop-up powerbomb, adding a stunner for good measure to get the win in 17 minutes. Owens was killer on the mic and he saved Theory either in kayfabe or reality. Um, And then they put on a banger match, definitely one to watch. I went 3.75 stars and a B plus just because I liked it so much. Yep, really much enjoyed it. Kevin Owens kind of back to that tweener face type of thing here. Everything he said makes sense. Crowd is up behind him 100% all the time with everything. Pretty straightforward overall. Um, 
and it was good. Not much more to really add. Yeah, it was really simple. Uh, Johnny Gargano backstage said Theory forgot what he's capable of doing in the ring, but Gargano is happy to remind everyone. Theory confronted him, saying all Gargano has done since returning is talk. Gargano said, Theory, you're actually right. I'm going to return to in-ring action next week. This was a really good extension of their storyline and a nice promo to tune in next week with Gargano making his in-ring debut. Now that you mentioned Monday Night Football, it makes even more sense why they have saved it here. I do hope Gargano gets like Mustafa Ali or Cedric Alexander, someone really, really exciting to wrestle. And on that note, it's a disappointment for me that Ali was in that uh, United States Championship number one contender tournament. And then he teamed with Cedric Alexander one week and they had an exciting match together. And now they've been off TV. Like, don't go back to the shit Vince was doing. You, there's a, there was a lot of repetitiveness on this show from stuff we've mm-hmm. seen recently. Get these guys into storylines. Put them in matches. Like, let's get this going. I'm sure they're doing stuff on main events, so they're being utilized. But one of the things I was looking forward to at Triple H was utilizing underutilized talent, not just bringing in new people. So the bringing in new people stuff, it's working and good for him. He's mostly made the right decisions to that aspect. But there's still a lot of people, T-Bar, uh, Dominic Dijakovic, uh, the same person, I'm just saying his name that he was going by, Mustafa Ali, Cedric Alexander. These are really, really talented wrestlers. you got to get these people on screen also, not just the new people that you're bringing in. Agree. Like, like, like I said before, this felt like a pre-Triple H pencil era episode of Rodden, and that's another example. All right. Uh, Karrion Cross fought Drew Gulak on SmackDown. Cross cut a taped promo saying McIntyre can take a moment to remember his suffering and Reigns can take a moment to enjoy his accomplishments. But Gulak was about to get a moment. He'll remember the rest of his life. Cross got his full NXT entrance minus the smoke in the ring. The smoke in the ring is part of what made that entrance so damn good with him and Scarlett standing there. So I thought it was weird that they uh, didn't do that. Also, they didn't do the sudden cutoff anymore. Instead, they just kept playing the entrance. So I would say it's 85% the same as what it was in NXT. Scarlett did her thing. Uh, Cross let Gulak get a ton of free shots before hitting a Saito suplex. Gulak, kind of, and I said Gulak, Gulak uh, kind of landed on his head. Luckily, he was fine. Cross went with the cross jacket in one minute and kept it locked in after the bell. Then Gulak was hung in the ropes like a crucifixion as the screen went black and white. Granted, there wasn't much to chew on here, but for what it was, Cross remains unimpressive in the ring. The vibe completely works, though, and the fans were happy to boo him. It was a debut squash match. It was good for the entrance and the aesthetic. Yeah, the entrance was was really cool. Obviously, not quite the NXT one, but there was a really there's a really cool angle where you see Scarlet walking, I think, and then like a music note hits, and as that hit, she like goes to the side, and Karrion Cross shows up behind her. I thought that was awesome. Um, they they always nail that kind of stuff with with entrances with WWE. The match was fine. Cross was not really as He's not as physically imposing as you right. often think yeah. he will be. Um, his hair being a little bit different, too, was noticeable. Yeah, that was weird. Kind of yeah. wet hair is down and stuff like that. The aesthetic was not great there, but it was fine. It was what it was. It was a good. Uh, Happy Corbin said he doesn't live in the past. So since he's on a string of bad luck, he's going to double down with an open challenge to the locker room. Shinsuke Nakamura answered that open challenge and Pat McAfee danced on the table. He purposefully kicked Michael Cole in the shoulder a couple of times. Uh, Corbin countered Kinshasa into a deep six. Nakamura flipped out of end of days. And when Corbin ran around the post outside, Nakamura caught him coming back inside with Kinshasa. For the win in two minutes and 30 seconds, Corbin was depressed walking into the loading dock when suddenly JBL's super stretch BMW limo pulled up and you heard a voice asking, 
what the hell has happened to you? Told him to get in. Corbin entered the limo with a smile on his face and they drove off. Now, I would shit on the match time here, but it's a rock bottom storyline. So it did make sense circumstantially for Nakamura to beat him easily. And the finish with Corbin coming around the outside and Nakamura hitting him, showing that Corbin keeps doing the same thing and it's just not working. So because of that, I was fine with it. And the JBL twist is super interesting. I'm not sure that keeping the wealthy gimmick is the way to go and Corbin really needs a drastic refresh. I wish they would go back to the lone wolf and have him reclaim his past or something like that. But this did get the job done. It has me interested in what's next with Corbin. And because of that, it's a good. Definitely a good, um, just at least in terms of being interesting, you know, and sometimes Corbin stuff just isn't interesting. So yeah, JBL was like, oh, okay, interesting. I don't know where this is going to go. Are we going to go right back to the rich guy gimmick? I don't know. I hope we go into more of the just kind of badass fighter type of gimmick, but uh, we'll see. I don't know. And then lastly, uh, we had Hit Row against Maximum Male Models. Uh, both Max and Maxine Dupree announced the entrance. Mansois posed after his first takedown. Massey got hit in the face and cowered outside. Los Lotharios came down with Maxine welcoming them. Massey catwalked on Adonis's back as like an offensive move. Hit Row then quickly won with the heavy hitter, which is a really bad tag team finisher. It's a dropkick backdrop. Uh, Los Lotharios taunted after the bell. So Hit Row welcomed them into the ring. They got outnumbered four to two before the Street Profits made the save to clear house. Now, I actually appreciated the model's aesthetic and ring presence. It was cool. They tagged in with a single finger. Their gimmick can actually work if it's given a chance, but they do not need LA Knight for that to work. As for Hit Row. But I'm afraid I've got some bad news. I'm not sure that Hit Row is going to work without Swerve, but it's hardly been given a chance to work. Nothing that's been done has been notable. Both of their matches has, have been super short. This was a short nothing match with low-end wrestling that wasn't special in any way. Nothing worth getting angry about, but definitely on the bad side of things. It did more to sell me on maximum male models than it did Hit Row, which is the opposite of what they planned given Hit Row was the team that won. If Hit Row is just meant to be like low-card filler in WWE, then that's fine. They can be a low-card team that gets beat as teams move up in the rankings and do stuff like that. But if they try to make them any more than that, like mid-card or upper mid-card, it's just not going to work. They're, I, I like it, Row. I like the gimmick. I liked when they were with Swerve. But just them without Swerve, it doesn't hit the same way. I agree with you on, on Maximum Male Models being kind of the more interesting thing coming out of that, in part because they're new and they're doing different type of things. We've seen Hit Row before. The rap gimmick has been done. Um, the, the model gimmick's been done too, but they're doing they're doing it in a fun way. To me, Max Dupree, LA Knight, is still kind of what makes maximum male models, but I also think he's more talented to be doing something different. So I, I don't really know where any of this goes. This is all low-card stuff. I thought this was good. It was entertaining, enjoyable for what it was. In terms of what either group is any bigger than that, I agree. I think the jury's still out on that. Did you have a grade for this? Oh, good. Oh, really? Okay. You're different than me. So, hey, you know, for yeah. uh, last yes, couple of episodes, we've been talking about how much we agree on everything. But today we clearly, I mean, we agreed on plenty, but clearly we didn't on the good, the bad, and the ugly. And that's the purpose of the segment, especially now that WWE is in a zone where 
We're not like giving them the benefit of the doubt when something's entertaining and calling it good, right? We can be a little bit more critical and actually uh, contextualize and categorize these things uh, better. I think on certain situations like Braun Strowman and like this, uh, where we slightly disagree, showing that difference in the good and the and the bad in particular is notable. I don't think we've had an ugly since Triple H has had the book. Is that is that accurate? Uh, I think we did one or two. We had one, really. It wasn't an it wasn't an Omos thing. I, there was something. I feel like there was one. I don't think we've I had. I do not remember what it was. I really don't think we have. But maybe maybe you're wrong, or maybe I'm wrong, and, and maybe we. It have. might have been a Dana Brooke thing. I don't know. Oh, with that really I, short I women's like we, match, maybe. It might have been. I'm trying to yeah. I feel like we had one, but I don't know. Maybe I gave that ugly. One thing uh, I want to note before we get out of here. Um, so Triple H has had the book for over a month at this point. You know what has been cut down on massively that we haven't really discussed? Countouts and disqualifications. Mm-hmm. Matches and via pinfall. That era, that era appears to be over. Yeah. Um, uh, also wrap up, uh, update on the thing we talked about at the beginning of this show. Uh, BTE dropped while we were recording this. Who cares? I skimmed through it. I read <laughs> recaps. Okay. They do not address the CM Punk yeah, stuff yeah. at all. It just it just ends with them eating pizza. Uh, but it is, it is notably up like 24 hours after it normally is. But uh doesn't look like there's anything. Well, yeah, I'm sure they had to get it. I'm sure they, in this case, had to get it approved, uh, which I don't know that they always do in the past. But yeah, notable that 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 is, I guess, live. And I think Sammy's vlog is live if anyone watches that. So go watch those things. But hopefully our breakdown of that situation at the beginning of the show did the situation justice and holds everything over until either news breaks or dynamite on Wednesday. And my presumption is that they are not announcing anything or uh, allowing any specific news to break because they want to use this for ratings on Wednesday, which I don't blame them necessarily, but it is going to be very interesting to see who actually is on that show. And if everyone is there and there's no repercussions, that's going to be interesting. If it's addressed half-heartedly, that's going to be interesting. We will find out. And Chris, you know, perhaps if you have the free time this week, you'll join us for the AEW portion of our Thursday show uh, to break down the fallout from the fallout of AEW All Out. I appreciate everyone listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast and really being with us for what's been a crazy last like seven or eight days, a ton of podcast episodes, three ultimate previews, uh, two instant analysis that covered, you know, three special shows, three pre-shows live on Twitter spaces, six polls posted on our Twitter account. Please do not forget to follow us there, by the way, at Getting Overcast. We drop shows when they're live. We tweet about the major TV shows while they're on the air. We talk wrestling all week long. And also, please remember the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave us a five-star rating on Apple. Also leave a written review. Let everyone know how much you love the show and why they should subscribe. And as you heard earlier on today's show, if you leave a five-star written review, we will read it live here on the air. One last thing before we get out of here. I am spending the next two weeks doing research on that podcast equipment that I talked about. I appreciate all those contributions as mentioned previously. Thank you all so much for supporting the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. For Vintage Chris Vanini, this is the Silver King Adam Silverstein. Thrilled that we kept this show under two hours and leaving you the three final words. Bye for now.